our Wednesday worship gathering for Emmaus. We're thankful you're able to uh, able to be with us tonight. As we get started, we uh, want to be able to pray for one another. I've got a scripture I'm going to read, and then after that, Kenny is going to preach for us, and then following that, we'll have one other time to pray together as as a church family at the end. A uh, quick reminder that this Sunday night is our final Sunday night worship service of the summer where we gather together and uh, Jeremy Russell is going to be preaching. So 5 o'clock Sunday night, our final sun- summer Sunday night worship service. We'd love for you to be a part of that. August the 4th, when we get into August for Sunday nights, August the 4th we're doing the community-wide foster uh, care event that night. If you're going to help on August the 4th that night with that foster care community event here at Emmaus, we need to make sure that everyone helping that night has been background checked. So if you want to help out on August the 4th, just get with Jim and make sure we've been through a, uh, you've been through a background check. And then August the 11th, that Sunday night, is when we do our community-wide school serve night. Go around to schools and clean up flower beds and bushes and build things for schools. So we've got... We've got that coming in in August that we're that we're really excited about. But just want to make sure you were aware of of kind of what's coming up there. Any updates on ways we can be praying for one another? Things going on in your Sunday school class or family or something that would be pertinent to update the church about? You guys have anything? Yes. would be great, yeah. So pray for the full and give us pray for little Will as he has surgery. You said Monday? That's when his surgery is? Okay. Good deal. Yes. Robert? Yeah. Collier. Yes. Yeah. That's right, yeah. I had a chance to see him this morning and pray with him, and so... They're in Legends Memory Care over there uh, by Rivendell. And so, yeah, it, probably, it, it does seem like it could be any day, but they sure appreciate all the prayer cards and everyone checking. And the service will be here at Emmaus when it happens. We just we don't know when that's going to be. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, many of you knew Glenn Barber, who was at one time children's pastor at First Baptist and uh you may have seen the story this last week where he was killed uh, by by a family member, and I don't know that they've found the, his son. Did they? Oh, wow. Okay, everybody knows, <laughs> except me. Story of my life, actually. Everybody knows except me. So that sums up my pastoring, my fatherhood, my everything in my life. It summed up right there in that moment. So uh, so they did find the find the son. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Glenn was, yeah, yeah, I know he impacted a lot of people through that and other things that he had done as well. Man, that was a hard story. Anything else? Yeah. Oh, goodness, yeah. For dubs to know how to care for them. Yeah. Yeah, when you hear stories of families going through that kind of heartbreak, it's so hard. Huh. Yes, Dan. I think it was canceled because of insurance situation, so. Look at me! <laughs> I knew something before you did, Dan. This is never happens. This is a big moment right here. This will never happen again. I knew something before Deanne, so, uh, yeah. Yeah, she was supposed to have surgery, and then it got canceled, so, yeah. Wow. 
Jessica Clark, one of our young moms, her father passed away, and so that ser- or that service is here tomorrow at, at Emmaus. But that's amazing as well, yeah, to do that. Yes, Beth? Yeah, that's right. We have the mission. We have a mission team in Ukraine, and then we have a mission team leaving this weekend to go to Calgary, Canada, and another one to go to Panama, to David Panama. So those teams are getting ready to go out, which is exciting. They're making last-minute preparations. We've got good groups heading out for sure. All right, let's, I want to read for us. Psalm chapter 46, and then I'm going to pray, and then Kenny is, is going to preach for us. So, uh, Psalm chapter 46, many of you know this passage, just listen to it in light of those prayer requests. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning comes. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He he utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord. How he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Let's pray together tonight. Father, we... Thank you that as we face situations in life, many that have been mentioned tonight that are so difficult to, uh, to think about and to go through, God, we are reminded of your power, of your control, of your sovereignty. And Father, we trust in you. We put our hope in you. You are a refuge and strength in times of trouble. And so God, I pray that you would help us to remember that, help us to share that hope and love with those around us whether it's families uh, that we know who are suffering or situations that people are going through, God, that we would be able to be still and know that you are God. And then that part about you being exalted among all nations, that we see that lived out through these mission teams that are going out, through the hope of the gospel that's being spread uh, both here and, and places around the world. God, I thank you so much for uh, for Kenny and Amy, what they mean to to me and Amanda and to my family, God, for what they mean to Emmaus, the ministry that you've given them here, the ministry that they have through their workplace. God, thank you for the work that you've done in Kenny's life through the power of your word, through the hope that he has as a dad and a husband. God, I pray for them in their marriage, for them as parents. God, thank you so much for him being able to share your word with us tonight, God, that we'd be receptive to that. You continue to work through our church family in the days to come, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you, Owen. Um, I think it's really neat that Owen allows some other people to get up here and speak. Um, I think it really stinks when he shows up to listen. Um, <laughs> um, no, I'm really, uh, and I, I want to also apologize to the members of my Sunday school class that are here because you're about to hear a lesson for the second time, but since most of you tuned out the first time, you'll maybe get something out of it this time around. Um, let's open our Bibles to uh, Hebrews chapter 11. We'll, we'll camp out there tonight, but we're going to move around um, quite a bit. Um, we uh, embarked on a study of Hebrews in our class, gosh, uh, quite a while ago, and um, um, it's a challenging book to teach for a lot of reasons, uh, not the least of which is that theologically it's, it's a mouthful, but um, it's also, it can be somewhat redundant because um, the writer is, is making points sometimes over and over and over again to this Jewish audience trying to convince them that their newfound faith in Christ uh, is worth their effort and, and their um, perseverance because some of them are tempted to, to fall away. And, um, and so the whole point of Hebrews, or, or 
the major point of Hebrews is that it's, it's to remove all the trappings of traditional Judaism and, re, and replace it with Christ alone, which is still a good message for all of us to hear as too, because for us to hear because um, our distractions don't come out of traditional Judaism, at least for most of us, um, but we have other distractions um, in our lives. And, and, and it talks about how faith in Christ alone is the only answer for any of us, and, and um, it, it, it deals with persecution, temptation, all those things. So it's, it's, it can be very fascinating. So let me read the first few verses that, that we're going to cover tonight, and then we'll, um, we'll go on from there. <clears throat> Starting in verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place where he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. <clears throat> by faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive, even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore he was born even of one man, and him as good as dead at that, as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number, and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore." Uh, those first three verses are a setup for what, what's to come, and, and we'll probably come back to those later. The, I think the keys are, are kind of Abraham's obedience and his citizenship, and we'll talk about those. Um, but I want to start out with, uh, with what some of the words that are in verse 11, where it says that um, Sarah was beyond the proper time of life, and Abraham was as good as dead. I think it's one of the most interesting lines in all of Scripture because... Um, it's almost like they trailed out of this kind of formal doctrine into slang, you know, and he was as good as dead. And, and, um, um, and you think about the audience that was reading this, and you think, why the recap of that story? This is an intensely Jewish audience. If anybody knew the Old Testament, it was the people who were reading the letter to the Hebrews. To go back over this again and to emphasize the story of Abraham and Sarah um, would be like going to Jackie and telling her how to make chocolate meringue pie. <laughs> Waste of time. She already has that down. These people would have had that down too, so why did he do that? Because they had gotten, ca they had got caught, in a, they had gotten caught up in all of the tradition of the temple the sacrifices, and they had begun to take on for themselves some role in their religion. And the point that he's trying to make to them is, this is so unbelievable. This is so impossible that only God could do it. She was past the, the time. He's as good as dead. Um, the Bible's full of these examples, and, and it is I've, I've read Hebrews 11, and I know we all have, a million times, right? It's the Faith Hall of Fame. But the thing that had never uh, gotten my attention like it did this time was the absurdity, the absurd circumstances that God works in. You read all these, you read these people's, you go through those lists, and you're like, every one of these people had life of trauma, adventure. N nobody had a regular existence. Um, you think, you just go back through the Bible, Job, Moses, Noah, Jonah, Joseph, Samuel, David, any of the prophets, John the Baptist, the disciples, Paul, Joseph, and Mary, Jesus. Think about all those lives. Think about the, the, I could go back through those names again, and I would throw out a name, and the first thing that would come to your mind would be either some trauma or adventure that they encountered during the course of their lifetime, and not just a little trauma or adventure, but a massive detour in life. That's what would come to your mind out of that list. In my line of work, we're always doing leadership training. And I always grade out the same way. Intensely practical, um, like things in order. It sounds kind of boring. I try not to be boring, but I like things to be where they're supposed to be and everybody to do what they're supposed to do. And where there are people who are off thinking in the clouds in our department of creative types, I love them, I need them to perform in the areas that I oversee, but I don't live in that world. I live in the world of did you get it done and was it successful? And I like to be in charge and to manage all of that for myself. 
So let me tell you how God dealt with me in my attempt to keep it all in the box that none of these people kept their lives in. <clears throat> it was about 10 years ago. Uh, Amy and I were fostering a little boy, a little seven-year-old boy from Chickasha. And um, <clears throat> when it started out, we didn't really think there was going to be much of a chance that, that he would wind up ours. But the months went along, and we started to see some, some change. He, he was on a ridiculous dose of, of medicine to control his behavior. And um, Cammie's back there nodding. I, she's heard all this uh, in other realms before. Um, he was drinking Mountain Dew at 10 o'clock at night. I called the social worker. I said, the kid does not need medicine. He needs no Mountain Dew. Um, so anyway, we went along, and uh, seven years old, and I would take him to Adams Elementary in Norman. Picture this. He, 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 you know, what a kid goes through in that situation. So traumatic. And he wanted me to carry him into school every morning. So here I am carrying a seven-year-old kid wrapped around my neck every morning into school. And it was a little bit before Christmas time, <coughs> um, and we got word that he wasn't going to be staying with us. Well, when Amy and I had gotten married, we had talked about having more kids. Let me change that. She had talked about having more kids. <laughs> and um, I love kids. I, I do. I love them. But I didn't feel like at my point in life, where I was almost as good as dead, that it was the right time for me <laughs> to have kids. <clears throat> so it was during this time of transition with this other uh, boy that, uh, so we're going to go through a time of him leaving and I walk in the back door from work one night, and there's Amy meeting me in the laundry room. That never happens. I mean, that's right inside the back door. And she's holding up these four tube things. And uh, she's standing there like this, and I go, what are those? And she goes, um, they're pregnancy tests. I'm a little slow on the take. And I said, I mean, the first thing I thought of, okay, Hannah is not old enough to be pregnant yet. Um, <clears throat> and she said, and they're mine. And um, because she was, I know she's faithful to me, you know, I knew they were mine also. And um, my reaction was not good. Not to her so much, but just generally speaking. And do you know why? Because I'm the guy who likes everything in a box. I like to live my life the way I want to manage it. And I was embarrassed. Because here I was too old to be having a baby. And, and can I tell you how wretched my heart is? My first thought was, what are other people going to think? And I, I went along two or three days, and, I, and I, I did treat Amy well or okay. But she had a conversation with my late mom and um, kind of told her that I was struggling with this. And uh, um, my mom and I were really, were really, really close. And um, I was driving home one night. I will never forget it. I was sitting right in front of the Mont in Norman, headed north on Porter. And uh, my cell phone rings, and it's mom. And I picked it up, and she said, I'm, I'm concerned about your walk. And I said, you're concerned about my walk? And she said, yeah, I've always felt you were a Christian man, <coughs> but I've got some questions. And I said, what are you talking about? And she said, well, I've been talking to Amy about this pregnancy, and she told me how you're reacting to it. And it makes me question your walk. And I said, well, Mom, you've got to understand. I said, look, look. Our next youngest is 10 years older than him. I've got one who's out of college. I said, this is ridiculous. And she said, yeah, it is. And she said, and there's one thing that God put on this planet that will last for all of eternity, only one, and it's a human soul, and he just gave you another one, and I can't understand how a Christian man would not be excited about that. That's the kind of line only mom gets away with. <laughs> but it made me rethink my position. And I'm going to tell you right now that um, God's done a lot of things through Andrew, more than I could count. But one of the most important things he did was God used him to create an absolutely absurd situation, and he changed me. And he made me less judgmental, and he made me more compassionate, 
and he helped me look at life through a little bit different lens. And I remember a few months later, Amy was on the floor playing with him, and, and uh, any of you who know her know that she's prone to cry just like that. And, uh, uh, but usually not just when we're sitting around on a Saturday afternoon. And she turned around. I was sitting on the couch. She was on the floor, and she had tears streaming down her face. And I said, what's wrong? I thought something was wrong with him. And she said, what would we do without him? And she was right. What would we possibly do without this kid who came in the middle of these incredibly absurd circumstances? And she, she is someone who is uh, fairly new to the faith. I mean, um, she, she's been saved, I guess, probably 10 years now, but um, she hadn't been at that time. Uh, and, and she said something very profound. She said, what we have to learn is that God's normal is not our normal. Isn't that true? What's normal for him, what, what he's doing in a plan, is different than what my little box might look like. And if I don't avail myself to that, then what am I missing? So as I, I read through these stories, now I, I see it differently. I, I see... I see life's hurdles, and you're thinking, well, that's not much of a hurdle. And you know what? You're right. That's a blessing. L let me tell you about my neighborhood. It's, not, it's probably not much different than many of yours. If you drove down my street, what you'd see is, are these nicely manicured Bermuda lawns the, in these red brick houses. It looks very neat. It looks very orderly. Okay? Next door to me is a retired university professor from the University of West, of West Virginia, crazy as a loon. Um, only has dogs talks to them like children. I know a lot of us do that, including me, but I'm talking about next level stuff. Five o'clock in the morning, I hear her out in the yard yelling at one of her dogs like it's a teenager, and I'm thinking, woman, we're, the rest of us are trying to finish off a good night's sleep. So, so that's Mary right here. Across the street to the left is Monty. Monty is a fairly well-known false teacher in the United States. He's, he's, he's kind of an underground type guy. Always wave at him, very friendly to him. His wife was a jewel. She was the one who, in our neighborhood, took pictures of everybody and made a scrapbook so that all the neighborhood would know each other. Isn't that a great idea? So she was like the beacon of the neighborhood, and she died. So now there he is all by himself. Across the street from me, Ken and June. June has cancer. I have to explain to Andrew sometimes when June comes outside without her wig, why she doesn't have any hair. Two doors down from them, another university professor, they've, they've asked us to sit their pets. They have cats. They've got a Chucky doll on their bookshelf, like the horror movie Chucky. Who, who, who does that? Right next door, a family that I think are, are believers, but they never engage with us verbally ever. They will turn around to not look at you so that you don't have, I mean, to call it shy would be charitable. And this year, at the, in the last month of school year, their son got run over by a car going to Norman North. He survived it. But like we went over and left a note, is there anything we can do? Crickets. So that nice, normal neighborhood that I live in, where's the normal? And you know what? None of us have normal, do we? There's no normal. Well, let's look down at verse 13. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having, and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. The, all of these, uh, Owen could get up here and explain it. I heard two different, I read two different commentators one said it's Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac. One said it could be everybody in chapter 11. I don't see where there'd be any error in either one of those. Um, so all these died in the faith without receiving the promises. Isn't that interesting? They had these big jobs. They were used by God in these mighty ways. And they had no clue what the outcome was. Al Mohler said, um, it's like you're headed to a city and you see the glow of the city but you can't see the city itself. Um, you may not know it's there, 
but you trust it's there just the same because you can see its glow. And that's how he, that's how he referred to these, to these Old Testament saints. So we're on a couple themes in this, in this verse. One is the faith of these saints truly was from 11.1, which is, you know it very well. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And it all pointed to Christ. That's one. And two, they viewed themselves as foreigners in the world. And that's a thing that repeats throughout Scripture so many times. But let's talk first about unaware of the outcome. That also happens in Scripture many times. And I think we have to apply it to our own lives because I, don't, you know, I work in sports, okay? For those of you who I don't know, I, I work in the athletic department at OU. There is a scoreboard at every one of our facilities, and every time we play a game, there's a clock that counts down to a finite end, and I'm going to know exactly what happened. That's not how life is. Matthew 13, 17, for truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. 1 Corinthians 3, 7. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. It, it said back in verse 8, Abraham went out not knowing where he was going. The faith of these saints didn't rely on the immediate results, and it was rooted in a steadfast God. And that's what our lives are too. It's the exact same way for us. I don't know what the outcome of Andrew's life is going to be. I've told a few of you this story. We named him Andrew because I read a book by John MacArthur called 12 Ordinary Men. And it's, it took each one of the disciples and it talked about their personality traits. And it said every time Andrew appears in Scripture, he's taking somebody to Jesus. And even sometimes the other disciples would take people to Andrew so he could take them to Jesus. That's what we hope his life is. He, he, he's, he came out of such uh, uh, unordinary circumstances that we just feel like, God, this is so odd. Have at it with him. And uh, I know we do that with all of our kids. Um, Okay, point two, they're seeking a country of their own, strangers and exiles. Boy, you talk about a constant theme in Scripture. I'm going to bust through these, but I want, if, you, if you don't write these down, that's fine. But just hear how often this comes up in Scripture. First Chronicles 29, 14, 15. For we are sojourners before you and tenants, as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow, and there is no hope. There is hope. Um, Psalm 119, 19. I'm a sojourner on earth. 2 Corinthians 5.20, therefore we're ambassadors for Christ as though he were making an appeal through us. Philippians 3.20, but our citizenship is in heaven. James 4.4, do, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? 1 Peter 1.16, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. 1 Peter 2.11, as sojourners and exiles abstain, abstain from fleshly desires. 1 John 2.15, do not love the world nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Why might this concept be important to us that we're just passing through? Because if we get locked in on the things that, that are just going to be here, we're gonna, we miss the big picture. These people were all used for the massive purposes of God's kingdom and did not allow their vision to be knocked down to a low level where they would miss that. And that's a challenge that we face as well. Um. Are these scriptures good for us? Is it, is it good for us to take a personal inventory in that area? Are we, do we have an eternal perspective? Are we waiting for some specific outcome in our lives or have we truly handed our lives over to God that we might be used in a way that we may never understand? And, and honestly, just to go off on an evangelical tangent for a second, if that is our approach, if, if our approach is going to be eternal, then shouldn't it impact the way we look at other people too? Wouldn't we look at them the way God does? Second, Second Samuel 16, 7, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance 
or at the height of his stature because I've rejected him. For God sees not as a man sees. For man looks at the outward appearances, but the Lord looks at the heart. Um, the Lord doesn't look at them as though they're on a cable news channel. The Lord does not look at them as though they're marching in a gay rights parade, although those sins will be held, they'll be held accountable for. But we have to look at them as eternal beings with a soul. And if we're really living for circumstances that are beyond this world, then we have to look at those people beyond this world. And we have to mourn for them if they don't know Christ. Verse 14, 14 through 16. For those who say such things confess they're strangers, they, or, and, and what they mean is confessing they're strangers. They make it clear that they're seeking a country of their own, and indeed if they'd been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So their permanent destination is heaven. Warren Wiersbe said, these people lived in tents. They, they lived nomadic lives in tents, but they knew a heavenly city awaited them. And their desire for a better country is not a passive verb. And this is where I really will get into trouble because Owen's sitting back there with all that Greek swimming around in his head. So I'm going to condense this and just say this. It's a pretty intense desire. It's an aspiration. It's reaching. It's stretching oneself out. That was their desire for that greater city. They didn't just sit around and wait for it passively. They lived their lives in great anticipation and great effort as it related to that city. It's no small thing. It's a maximum effort situation. And that kind of obedience gets rewarded because in verse 16 it says, God was not ashamed. They were faithfully obedient and God was not ashamed of them. And I read that and I thought, well, who is he ashamed of? Luke 9, 26. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them. And when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. These people referenced in the Hall of Fame of Faith were people who knew that, who knew that God and his word would prevail regardless of their personal circumstances. Matthew Henry said, it's our duty and reason, it's our duty to reason down our doubts and fears by looking as Abraham did to the almighty power of God, the best way to enjoy our comforts is to give them to God, and he will then give them uh, back to us as will be best for us. Faith does a number of things, but there are two things that I want to touch on specifically that, that have happened in my life as a result of it. The first one is, my faith sustains me as a believer. It sustains all of us as believers. Um, um, Andrew has convicted me He's gotten old enough to know that I'm older. And I've never said a word about it to him, but he's, he's figured it out. And he has started, he'll get very emotional, say, Dad, I don't want you to pass away. Um, and so I've gotten, I've started getting up every morning at 6.15 going for a run, okay? So I'm not going to let my physical well-being or lack thereof be the thing that takes me away from that kid. And occasionally he wants to go with me. And um, we'll, we'll take off and... He's, he's on, he just turned nine. So when you go off, it's about three miles. And so you've got to cut that up into digestible bits for him because you say three miles and it blows his mind. So we'll be going, and, and he'll say, okay, where are we going next? And I'll point like three blocks down, and he'll go, oh, I can't make that. And I say, dude, you can do it. I said, it's only three. And I'm thinking, you've got nine-year-old legs. You could run for nine miles. Um, but I said, you can do it, Andrew. Let's go. And so we'll take off and run. And when we get to the end of those three blocks, I stop him. And I turn him around and I say, that's where we were. Look where we are now. And he'll go, wow. That's how your faith will sustain you. Is if you turn around and look where God has brought you. You've got to look in the rearview mirror sometimes. And you've got to see what hurdles he's helped you get over in the past. The look on his face when he realizes what he accomplished versus what the challenge is that lies ahead of him are two completely different looks. But that look of satisfaction when we get to the end of those three blocks, I'd pay for that. Um, it, sustain, it sustains us. God reminds um, Job sternly uh, what the Lord has done, 
Um, we have to always look at that. You know, he did it sternly with Job. He said, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Um, it's a little bit nicer in Psalm 66, verse 5. It says, come and see the works of God, who is awesome in his deeds towards the sons of men. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There, let us rejoice in him. Where, where in our lives has he made the land dry and helped us walk through? In a gathering like this, with as many believers as we got in this room, we could go, we could go for hours on how faithful God has been to us, and that's what sustains our faith. Um, the second thing is how it's a witness to us. <clears throat> we have a, I, I'm the softball administrator at OU, and we have a kid on that team named Nicole Mendez, and Nicole's really a good player, and, and in the recently played College World Series, she was probably our MVP. And she started as a freshman, but about um, a third of the way through her sophomore year, she lost her starting job. And um, I was at an event with her, and so I made a point to sit down beside her. Nicole is a kid who is very overt about her faith. She is a strong Christian, and every opportunity she gets to witness or to speak about her faith, she jumps on it. And um, so she's just a terrific witness. Um, and when she lost her starting job, though, you can imagine what her demeanor was like. Um, if you've played sports and you've had success and all of a sudden you're on the bench, that's a bitter pill to swallow. And so we're at this event together, and I sat down beside her, and I said, how are you doing? And, and she said, oh, I mean, smile on her face. She said, she said, you know. And I said, Nicole, this is going to be the most critical time that you're going to spend at OU. And she said, why do you say that? And I said, because as of right now, your credibility is on the line. You've been a witness for Christ when things were good. And now the tables have turned on you, and you, everybody is going to watch you to see how you react. And um, that's just God working through me. I would have never been smart enough to think of that myself. But um, um, she used that, and she turned it around. And, and, and she, she would have turned around playing-wise anyway, but I think it helped with her attitude um, a little bit. <coughs> a few years ago, we had a men's Bible study here on Monday nights. It, I think, still goes on. Um, but it started out with a core group, and and we were meeting. We met uh, the first time we first time or two we ever met. We were in a coffee shop over in the other building, and and um, and we decided that we to have an effective Bible study, we would need for uh, the the men to um, give their testimony, so we could get to know each other a little bit, and uh, and so we went around um, the room, and guys would give their testimony, and we got to a guy named Ross Bain, who I. Some of you probably remember Ross. He passed away a few years ago. Um, and when it was Ross's turn to speak, Ross just raised up his shirt. He'd been a cancer patient for I don't know how long. 10, 15, maybe 20 years. I don't know. His stomach and chest looked like somebody had just taken a machete to it because of all the surgery he'd had trying to cut cancer out. That's a witness. And when Ross was, um, was unconscious and on his deathbed, we continued to meet in his bedroom at his house. Because when you encounter somebody like that, you can't leave them. When you see faith like that, he, he spent the whole time that he was in a terminal situation. And I know you've known other people, and some of you may have done this yourselves witnessing to the people who were caring for him. That's how, that's how Ross went out. I remember one night we were standing right out in this hallway. He was holding little Andrew, and he fell down because he was so weak. Um, and I remember um, last night we walked out of there, several of those guys kissed that jaundiced, unconscious forehead. Because faith like that has an impact on you. He died in 2012, and I can't talk about him even today. Spurgeon said, nothing more tends to strengthen the faith of a young believer than to hear the veteran Christian covered with scars from battles, testifying that the service of his master is a happy service, his service is pleasant, and his wages are everlasting joy. 
After the man had been rid of the legion of demons by Jesus, he wanted to go with Jesus. <clears throat> and instead, Jesus put him out on a, on a witnessing assignment. He said in Mark 5:19, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. 1 Timothy 3.15, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that's in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Our faith sustains us. Our faith needs to be a witness to other people. Chapter 11 of Hebrews, the Faith Hall of Fame, reminds us that his work will often show up at really unusual points in our lives. And it reminded me that when we hit a difficult spot, um, it's really important to ask the question, Lord, how are you going to use this situation? Because I think in the most trying of all circumstances, as he's proved in the Bible over and over and over again, that's where he does his most amazing work. Um, and I'll close with this. Abraham was the was the one we kind of focused on tonight. Was his faith always exemplary? No. Uh, what about when he encountered Abimelech with Sarah and tried to pass her off as his sister? Not good faith that day. But now he stands as a beacon in, in Hebrews chapter 11. So our faith... God will strengthen over time. And our faith, unlike ours, or unlike Abraham's, we serve a God whose faith never wavers. Psalm 136 says, The God of gods we serve for his loving kindness is everlasting. That's the God we serve. <clears throat> Let me just, if you wouldn't mind, just close your eyes. I just want, I want to read this scripture over us. I think this is, it's a good exclamation point for the end of, of what we're doing to, going to do tonight. And this is a blessing, but I want, as I read this, I want, us to, I want us to read this collectively as a prayer. I want to pray that this is what God will do with all of us. So if you wouldn't mind, bow your head, and I'll read this out of 1 Peter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved for you in heaven, you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though, for now, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor to the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Lord, we praise you. We thank you. Um, we are faithful people, and yet we ask you to grow our faith. And Lord, help us to understand that when life's trials come, and they will come, that it may be in that very moment that you're looking to do a dynamic work in our lives. So let us not waver. Let us be sustained by what we've already seen in our lives and in the lives of those around us. We know that you're real. We know that your, your work is genuine. We trust you. Let it sustain us. And then, Lord, let it be a witness to others. Let our light shine so that other people can see this faith that we have, not that we would be glorified, but so that they would be so attracted to the one that we can trust who loves us steadfastly forever and ever. And it's in Christ's name we pray. And all of us said, amen.
Hello? Disk. Play. David was a good king for Israel. He defeated his enemies, and he obeyed God to do what was fair and right for God's people. One day, David thought about King Saul and his family. David and Saul's son, Jonathan, had been best friends. He had promised to be kind to Jonathan's family. David wondered if anyone from that family was still alive. David said to one of Saul's servants, I want to show kindness to someone from Saul's family. Is anyone still alive? The servant said, Yes, Jonathan's son, the one whose feet were injured, is still alive. The servant told David where Jonathan's son lived. His name was Mephibosheth. David called for him to his palace in Jerusalem. When Mephibosheth arrived, he bowed down before David to show respect. Mephibosheth, David said. Mephibosheth answered, I am your servant. Don't be afraid. I made a promise to your father, Jonathan, and I want to show you kindness for your father's sake. David told Mephibosheth what he would do for him. I will give you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul. Also, I want you to eat all your meals at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down. Why would you show such kindness to someone like me? He wondered. David made sure that Saul's servants would take care of the land and farm it for Mephibosheth. From that time on, Mephibosheth lived at the palace and ate his meals at King David's table as if he were one of King David's own sons. King David showed surprising kindness to Mephibosheth, even though he didn't have to. In a greater way, God shows surprising kindness to us. Because of Jesus, he invites us into his family and gives us life with him forever. David was a good king for Israel. He defeated his enemies, and he obeyed God to do what was fair and right for God's people. One day, David thought about King Saul and his family. David and Saul's son, Jonathan, had been best friends. He had promised to be kind to Jonathan's family. David wondered if anyone from that family was still alive. David said to one of Saul's servants, I want to show kindness to someone from Saul's family. Is anyone still alive? The servant said, Yes, Jonathan's son, the one whose feet were injured, is still alive. The servant told David where Jonathan's son lived. His name was Mephibosheth. David called for him to his palace in Jerusalem. When Mephibosheth arrived, he bowed down before David to show respect. Mephibosheth, David said. Mephibosheth answered, I am your servant. Don't be afraid. I made a promise to your father, Jonathan, and I want to show you kindness for your father's sake. David told Mephibosheth what he would do for him. I will give you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul. Also, I want you to eat all your meals at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down. Why would you show such kindness to someone like me? He wondered. 
David made sure that Saul's servants would take care of the land and farm it for Mephibosheth. From that time on, Mephibosheth lived at the palace and ate his meals at King David's table as if he were one of King David's own sons. King David showed surprising kindness to Mephibosheth, even though he didn't have to. In a greater way, God shows surprising kindness to us. Because of Jesus, he invites us into his family and gives us life with him forever.